He is risen. He is risen indeed. Happy Easter. My name is Tommy Allen, and I'm the lead pastor of New Hope Presbyterian Church in Kent, Washington. And this is Easter Sunday. I'm so excited that you are here and you're able to join us virtually. And if you are able to join us in person, we meet at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings. We look forward to having any and all of you who are watching right now join us. So with that said, I thought during Easter at our worship services, we typically begin the service with a call to worship and then a confession of sin. And I thought I would start today by using the confession of joy that we actually use on Easter. It's just different. So the profession of joy goes like this. It says, we glory in your cross, O Lord, and glory in your resurrection. For by virtue of your cross, joy has come to the whole world. May God be merciful to us and bless us and show us the light of his countenance and come to us. Let your ways be known upon earth and your saving grace among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. We glory in your cross, O Lord, and glory in your resurrection. For by virtue of your cross, joy has come to the whole world. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Why don't I pray for us to start? Father, I do thank you for... Um, the resurrection. I thank you for Easter. I thank you for the joy that comes. I pray that those listening, that you would open the, the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf, that they might hear you calling their very names this morning through the proclamation of the resurrection of Jesus. I pray that you'd be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray all of these things. Amen and amen. <clears throat> Well, as you know, we're following along in a series that follows the Jesus Storybook Bible. And in the Jesus Storybook Bible, for this week, there are four different accounts of the resurrection, right, that come from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're going to narrow down and focus on John chapter 19, or 20, rather. And we're going to focus specifically on Mary Magdalene and her encounter with Jesus in the garden post-resurrection and so why don't I do this to, to build a little um, context. I'm going to read to you um, the first 10 verses of this passage, and then we'll pick up with Mary. So it says this. It says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. That part, just break for a second, always makes me laugh because John wrote this, and he's writing about himself. And like for eternity, he will have encoded that when we were racing to the tomb, I beat Peter. Like, no question. Anyhow, stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him, and he went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So when it says that they, he, they both looked in, and they saw and believed, most people think what they believed was Mary's account that the tomb was empty. Something happened to the body of Jesus. And so that they actually believed. And then it says they went home because they didn't really understand that he was to rise again yet. So the big question that comes up around Easter, you know, I was in a woodworking store 
a while back and people know I'm a pastor there. And one of the employees, you know, said, hey, pastor, he said, what does your religion believe about Easter? And I'd talked to this guy before and I said, why don't you tell me what your religion believes about Easter? And he said, well, we're Catholic. And so um, let me think about it. He said, Jesus, uh, he was crucified on Friday. I said, yep. And he said, and he rose again on Sunday, Easter. And I said, yep, that's what we believe. And he said, oh, okay. And I said, but that isn't your real question, is it? And he said, I don't even know what my question is anymore. And I, I said, well, I think the real question you're asking is, so what? What's, what's the big deal? Why does everyone make a big deal about Easter Sunday? In some ways, Easter Sunday, even in just practice in churches, is bigger and gets more attention and more everything than Christmas does. And so why is it so important? That's what we're going to talk about today. Why do you need a resurrected Jesus just as much as you need a crucified Jesus? You see, a lot of us, we think about the, the gospel, we think about the message of, of the Bible, and I think we tend to stop at the crucifixion oftentimes. And if you stop at the crucifixion, it's an incomplete gospel. You end up feeling like you do at the end of Old Yeller, right? If you've seen Old Yeller, it's on Disney Plus now, by the way. Um, old Yeller, basically this family finds this Old Yeller dog, they're pioneers, and the, the dog does everything with these two boys, and there's a little feisty boy named Arliss, and right toward the end, uh, Arliss is attacked by a wolf, or at least a wolf is coming at him, and, and Old Yeller jumps in and he rescues Arliss, and, and they realize that this wolf has rabies, and they think, oh wow, what do we do? That means we have to quarantine Old Yeller overnight in the barn, and every time I watch it, I don't know why I expect a different ending, but you expect him to go into the barn the next day after Old Yeller, the hero, has saved Arliss and Old Yeller to be just wagging his tail and happy that they're there. And he opens the barn door and Old Yeller has his teeth bared and he clearly has rabies and, and Travis has to go out and with a shotgun and put him down. And it's just such a drag. And because, because the story your heart knows is that the hero's supposed to come back. He's supposed to be alive when you go in there. There's supposed to be some joy. And if you don't have a resurrected Jesus, your Christianity is like basically an ongoing episode of Old Yeller. It just is like a drag. And so this morning, I hope to communicate to you why Easter is so important, why the resurrection of Jesus is everything. And so we're going to get three things this morning. We're going to get a valid question. We're going to look at a surprising encounter. And then finally, we're going to look at an urgent joy. Okay. So once again, that's a valid question, a surprising encounter and an urgent joy. So, right. We set the context earlier when we, you know, basically Mary Magdalene and probably some other women went with her and they find the tomb empty and they go running back and they tell the disciples the tomb was empty. And the disciples then run, Peter and John at least run, and they see what's going on, and they then go home. They're sort of perplexed. They don't know what to do. And then in verse 11, it says, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now, it's interesting. Um, Mary Magdalene here, she's, she's one of the most important people in the New Testament. 
because she is mentioned about 12 times in the Gospels. That's more than most of the apostles. In fact, um, the church has historically said tongue-in-cheek that she was the apostle to the apostles, right? Because Jesus first revealed himself to her and then went and told, she went and told the others. Which, by the way, that also lends credibility even to the fact that the resurrection did happen, that if, if it was a lie, if they were just making this stuff up, they would have put men because women couldn't testify. Women's word meant nothing in the ancient Near East, really. And yet she's the one. She's at the center of all of this. So the, the Peter and John, two of the, the insiders, go home, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. Now, the, the Greek word there for weeping is is big it means more like lamentation and mourning and you know ripping your clothes it was just like bad she was like weeping and and lamenting outside and as she's doing that she stoops over and looks into the tomb and verse 12 and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of jesus had lain one at the head and one at the feet now you notice these are probably presbyterian angels because when you, you remember when Peter and John looked in, they noticed that all the clothes were folded up nice and orderly, right? So the Presbyterian angels are decent and in order. Nonetheless, um, they ask her, woman, why are you weeping? Now, that's an interesting question. The first thing I always wonder when I read this text is why wasn't she surprised? Either these were noticeably angels or if nothing else they were two average guys but they were both dressed in white like that seems like i'd be like mm, who are you guys a little sketchy sitting here in the <laughs> empty grave she doesn't seem to be surprised at all instead she basically says um they've taken away my lord and i don't know where they've laid him that's why she's saying i'm I, i'm weeping because i don't know where the dead body of jesus is and so the next thing that you have to ask is why did they ask her the question why are you weeping why didn't they just tell her why didn't they just say it, it leads you to believe they think that she already knew or um it might be sort of a general rebuke to her in, in other words if they think she already knows and she comes in crying and she says they've taken the body of my lord and they're like why are you weeping or they're at their base gets more it's almost like a gentle rebuke why are you weeping don't you get it don't you understand what is going on here in other words jesus told her and the rest of the disciples over and over again he said that i will be crucified and buried and after three days i will rise again he said that over and over again he promised that and yeah i always think of these angels would be like okay remember what jesus said Three days, today we got Friday, Saturday, and today is work with me, work with me. She doesn't get it. She doesn't really understand at all. Um, and really what she doesn't get is, or what's going on here is there's a sense in which she doesn't believe that Jesus is risen or that it was even possible. In fact, no one really believed in resurrection in the ancient Near East. There's no religion that we know of that believed in the resurrection of like one person just like raising himself from the dead um, there was a sect of jews that believed in resurrection but they believed that resurrection would be at the end of the age and it would be the resurrection of the righteous not just like one dude just like coming back after he was clearly dead and so 
in her worldview, it probably it never landed when Jesus said, I'm going to rise again. But there were other promises that he made that she didn't believe clearly in this moment, at least, um, that she didn't believe. Remember, he said, I, I'm where I'm going. You cannot come. And I promise you that I will not leave you as orphans. I will never fail you or forsake you. He made all these promises. So either he, he was making those promises in vain or there is more to the story than the fact that he is dead and that this empty tomb means something different and she shouldn't despair over it. Now, the problem when we look at Mary, it's easy to criticize people like her, but the, the, actual, the thing is she's doing what most of us do all the time. I mean, so here's spoiler alert. If you're a human being, bad things are going to happen. And when bad things happen, what is your default mode? Is your default mode to despair? Is your default mode to try and control? Is your default mode to like investigate, you know, or is your default mode to rely on the promises of God and to remind yourself, okay, this is bad, but God promised me he would never fail me or forsake me. This side of heaven, I, my default response is often negative. It's often to despair. And what that means is for, for Mary and for us is at, at some level, we don't really get question 26 of the Heidelberg Catechism. It's probably my favorite question. The question says this, it says, what do you believe when you say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And the answer that the eternal father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth and everything in them, who still upholds and rules them by his eternal counsel and providence is my God and father because of Christ, his son. I trust him so much that I do not doubt he will provide whatever I need for body and soul, and he will turn to my good whatever adversity he sends me in this sad world. So it, when we believe that, it starts to change everything. We start to see purpose, even in the bad things. Uh, another way to put that, I think it was in Chronicles of Narnia, it's in the Jesus Storybook Bible too, is that, that God is going to, he promised to start making all the sad things to be untrue. And for Mary and for us, the beginning of all the sad things becoming untrue starts at the resurrection. And that's what she finds out next. She, for Mary, begins with a, a very surprising encounter. And so what happens? These men ask her, why are you weeping? And she says, they've taken away my Lord. I don't know where they have laid him. So she's completely focused on the fact that A, Jesus is dead and that someone must have taken him. That's the only possible thing. And so what happens next in verse 14? Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Now, her, her dedication to Jesus alive or dead is amazing. And so she turns around and she sees Jesus, but she doesn't recognize him. And so People, there are basically two camps on this, two ends of the continuum, that one is very naturalistic and one is very supernaturalistic. How come she didn't recognize Jesus? You know, the naturalistic side would say, well, she was just so distraught and her eyes were, were puffy probably and she was crying and through the tears, she really couldn't tell. I, I don't buy that one. Um, on the other hand, people say it's just it was completely supernatural. The, that she basically, is like the, the, 
disciples on the road to Emmaus. They were walking with Jesus and had no idea who he was until he revealed himself to them. He opened their eyes and they could see. And there is something to that one for sure. But I think, you know, Occam's razor, the simplest solution is usually the, the right one. I think the easiest way to understand why she didn't recognize him, at least immediately, is because she looks up and she sees a, a gardener and she wouldn't have recognized the gardener as Jesus because seeing this guy in front of her and associating him with Jesus, it just wouldn't have been part of her like plausibility structure in her mind. And what I mean by that is, you know, theologian Leslie Newbegin used to say that all of us have plausibility structures, things that are possible and things that are not possible. And it's hard for us to think in terms of things being possible that in our structure and our mind are just not. And so think about what Mary had been through. She had been with Jesus for most of his ministry. He cast demons out of her. She basically had been with him from toward the beginning almost to the very end. And she had seen his arrest. She had seen him flogged. She had seen him beaten and bloodied to the point to, uh, to which he was unrecognizable. That's how badly he was beaten. And then he was the crown of thorns was put upon him. And then he was crucified and then he was pierced in the side and he was just this mangled pulp of a man and then he was taken down and he was dead and he was wrapped in cloth and he was placed in a grave and the person she sees is not the brutalized mangled Jesus that would have been the last image she would have had in her mind of Jesus on one hand on the other hand it's not this glorious angelic sort of you know, surrounded by a halo, Jesus. In other words, you would think, at least in my mind, that if Jesus was going to show up, it would be sort of like, oh, you know, that she would, it would be this grand thing, this glorious thing. And yet she looks and sees this ordinary guy and, and he appears to be a gardener. Now, that word gardener is in some sense is at the center of this whole passage. Why did she see, why did Jesus appear to her to be a gardener, not glorious, not mangled. And I think the answer is actually goes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. That she looks back, notice it says she, she looks at him and it says she did not know that it was Jesus. He asked her the questions and she says, supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, have you carried him away? So what does gar Jesus being a gardener have to do with this text that just seems almost weird until you look at the whole story of the Bible. Remember when God created everything and he placed Adam Eve in the garden and he says, this is the way it is supposed to be. This is shalom. These are the, this is the, the, the perfect world. And Adam, I'm placing you in the garden to do what? To work it and to keep it. In other words, Adam was a gardener. And he said, Adam, you have one job. You just have to basically make this garden flourish and be fruitful and multiply and spread my image throughout the earth. In other words, I want you to expand the boundaries of the garden until it encompasses the whole world. Just don't eat it at that tree right over there, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we all know the story. Adam and Eve did eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The first gardener, not only did he not expand the garden, not only did he not cultivate the garden and, and help the garden to, to encompass all of creation, but he introduced a curse that ruined the garden. That he was, he talked about not having a green thumb, right? Adam was a horrible 
gardener. He ruined everything and the curse that came upon him. Remember what God said to Adam? He said, cursed is the ground because of you. Now you fast forward to the New Testament and Jesus comes. And Jesus comes as the second Adam. Remember the Apostle Paul calls him that in Romans chapter 5. The second Adam comes and he actually takes away the curse that the first Adam introduced. But the way he takes it away is by going to the cross. And at the cross of Jesus, he deals with the curse that causes all the weeds. And when Jesus rises from the dead as the first fruit of all creation, he basically, the resurrection is the first step in restoring creation to what God intended it to be in Eden. In other words, the, the purpose of Eden was not just to be this little garden where they lived, but it was to, to spread Eden. It was to make Eden so it took over the whole world. And the resurrection of Jesus is the first fruits. It's the very beginning of the second Adam doing what the first Adam failed to do. The second Adam, Jesus, bore the curse. And because of that, we could not only be forgiven, but we could be justified. But it's even bigger than that because he also begins this process of renewing and restoring all of creation, and that starts with renewing and restoring you and me. In, in other words, the resurrection isn't just the fir first fruit of, of the earth becoming what Eden was intended to be, but it is also the first fruits of you and I becoming what we were intended to be. The, the gospel changes us from the inside out, and that's not just because Jesus died on the cross. It's because of also what happens in and through His resurrection and our participation in that. And when you see that, that not only should bring joy, but it should bring sort of an urgent joy. And that's what happens next. Consider verse 15 or 16. Jesus said to her, Mary, <laughs> and she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. So notice she, she supposes that Jesus was the gardener and she was right. She just had no idea how right or how correct she was. And Jesus simply calls her name. He doesn't say, Mary, it's me. Look, he doesn't say, you know, Mary, what an idiot. You know, why don't you believe my promises? He just says, Mary. And she recognizes him for who he is, and she shouts, Rabbanai. And the reason she shouts, Rabbanai, and it isn't reflected in our English translation, it doesn't just mean teacher, it means my teacher. In other words, she realizes exactly who Jesus is. And now, did you notice the order there? Jesus called her, and she responded. That's always the way the gospel works. That, in other words, Unless Jesus calls your name, you won't come. Unless Jesus calls your name, you won't see him. The question is, do you hear him calling your name? Do you, do you feel that do you, in, your, in, your, in your bones? Do you, do you sense in the, the, the heart of who you are that Jesus is calling you or has called you? Typically, the way he calls us is through the preaching of his word. Typically. That might be on the radio, it might be like right now, maybe you're watching a video, maybe it's in person, maybe it's a book you're reading. He use, utilizes people preaching his word, his gospel, to call people by name. And so the question is, have you heard or have you responded to that gospel? Have you trusted Jesus? If you want to talk to somebody, write us at hello at newhopekent.org and someone will get with you immediately. Mary heard 
Jesus call her and she did respond. In fact, not only did she respond, apparently she grabbed him in a incredibly tight hug and was not planning to let go. Notice it says, verse 17, Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I'm not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and to your father, to my God and to your God. So the word there he uses for clinging is to, to basically either like hug really tightly or to, to even to pinch somebody like you're hurting them. And so you can just imagine Jesus sort of pinned there like, Mary, you need to let up. You need to let go a little bit. Now, why does he tell her that? Is it because he's too holy now or you can't touch him? Well, that, that can't be the case because we know in other places he actually invites people to touch him. Remember, he tells Thomas, like, put your hands in the fingers in the hand, holes of my hands. Something else is going on here. And he says it to her. He says, don't cling to me. Don't, don't hold me like this, for I've not yet ascended to my father. In other words, the, the, he's not, the job isn't done yet. Mary, that, that Jesus told them this before in John 14 through 17, that he would have to ascend to the Father, and in return, he would send the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. In other words, Mary, for the whole world, whoever would have faith in me to experience the same intimacy that we have right now, you're going to have to let me go. But not only are you going to have to let me go, but I want you to go tell my brothers something. And he says, go tell my brothers I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, my God, and your God. That's a pretty incredible statement he makes there as well, because this is the first time I think where he's said things like that. You know, he's taught them to pray saying our father, and he implied that God was father. But this is the first time he says, I'm going to go to my father and your father. Same one. You're in the family now because of what I have done through my life, my death and my resurrection. And I want you to go tell my brothers this. And the, the great thing here is when you, when you really start to understand the gospel and you trust Jesus, instead of gutting it out and trying to be good enough to be saved, what you begin to do is go tell other people that you don't need to gut it out in order to be saved. You don't need to gut it out and be good in order to be saved, and neither do they. In other words, the natural outworking of the gospel is not just joy, but it's an urgent joy. And it's a joy that goes and tells other people that most of us think oftentimes like, wow, you know, I need to be a better person. I need to do this. I need to do that. And the gospel says you will never be good enough. But Jesus has been good enough on your behalf. Jesus has done everything it takes to save you from your sins. Now, when you turn to Jesus and embrace him rather than your sins, is your life going to change? Absolutely. If the Holy Spirit is in you and greater is he that is in you than he that is in the, in the world, if that's the case, are you going to change? Absolutely. But that's not why we are saved. And because of that, we actually have the ability and the joy to go tell other people the same thing, that Jesus has died and he has risen from the dead and he has ascended. And I love the way this ends because remember, John is writing this. And so he, he, he could record it any way he wants. So Jesus has told her to say something very specific to the disciples, right? He has told her very specifically to tell them that I am, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. And verse 18, we assume she ran back. It says, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord. <laughs> right? And then John puts, and it, that he said these other things to her. 
In other words, she eventually got around to telling them the, the specific message that Jesus gave. But when she burst in the door, at least in my imagination, she just says, I have seen the Lord. And then she told him her joy is urgent because she has had an encounter with Jesus. And the question is, um, have, has you had an encounter with Jesus? Is your joy urgent? Do you, do you understand why Easter is so important? Remember, that's the first question I asked is, do you understand why Easter is so important? And, and the answer is, it, it is important. And the reason it's important is because the hero of the story has risen from the dead and has begun the process of restoring and renewing all things, including you. Do you believe that? Think about that. Let me end by reading you the last part of the Jesus Storybook account here. So this is right after Jesus told her to go tell his brothers and says, and it seemed to her that morning as she ran almost as if the whole world had been made anew, almost as if the whole world was singing for joy. The trees, the tiny sounds in the grass, the birds, her heart. Was God really making everything sad come untrue? Was he making even death come untrue? She couldn't wait to tell Jesus' friends. They won't believe it, she laughed. She was right, of course. <laughs> Let me pray for us. Father, I pray now that you would, um, you would give us the joy that comes along with encountering Jesus, the gardener. Jesus, the one who has come and has borne the curse. Jesus, the one who has risen from the dead and is making all things new. In Christ's name, we pray these things. Amen and amen. So in church at this time, we would stand and sing a doxology and we would have an offertory and then we would do a profession of faith. And so I'm going to close this morning with the profession of faith from the Heidelberg Catechism. And one of the things I like about the Heidelberg Catechism as a, that is different than the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Shorter Catechisms, Larger Catechisms, which are actually the standards of Presbyterian churches, is that it is often asking these theological questions in terms of how they benefit us, like what's in it for me? And so the question today is question 45. It says, how does the resurrection of Christ benefit us? Answer, first, by his resurrection, he has overcome death so that he might make us share in the righteousness he won for us by his death. Second, by his power, we too are already resurrected to a new life Third, Christ's resurrection is a guarantee of our glorious resurrection. Amen and amen. And I send you from this virtual place reminding you simply, He is risen. He is risen indeed. Have a great week.